This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Trust in Paranoid Genres. The Starry Wisdom Cult. M.R. James. And non-standard UFO Conspiracies. Once Upon a Time is a storytelling card game. You know this because you are supernally attentive to the sponsors who keep our show going. But did you know that there are a bunch of expansions available for Once Upon a Time? Before now, there were three expansions, Seafaring Tales, Enchanting Tales, and Create Your Own Storytelling Cards expansion. Seafaring Tales lets you weave tales of pirates, sailing ships, stowaways, and mermaids. And scurvy? Well, there is no vitamin C card in the set. Enchanting Tales adds magical princess stories, brooms, jealousy, woodsmen, godmothers. And create your own cards. It seems pretty self-explanatory. At this point, the fearless listener is asking, hey, what's this before now business? Well heard, fearless listener. Now there's a brand new fourth expansion for Once Upon a Time, Nightly Tales. Having rushed out to grab your copy of Nightly Tales, you'll tell a story from cards like Courtly Love, and a Herald, and the Reckless Aspect. And Battlefields and Betrayals, although that's Courtly Love, not Courtney Love, so obviously there's some crossover. And ending (laughs) cards like Because of Her Skill with a Lance, Women Were Allowed to Become Knights from Then On. Nightly indeed. Shall we recap? How about it, good sir? There are three, nay, four expansions available right now for Once Upon a Time, 3rd Edition. And Nightly Tales is brand new. And it adds valorous deeds, bold characters, and all manner of Arthurian elements to your Once Upon a Time game. 38 new story cards and 17 new ending cards, all told. For more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin2. atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin2. For fearless listeners who like knights, quests, and telling stories, and who have an excellent taste in card games. The thump of miniatures, the clatter of dice, and the beneficent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive tell us we've once more entered the friendly, subterranean confines of the Gaming Hut, and into the normal hail fellow well-met camaraderie of the Gaming Hut comes Patreon backer Graham Wills, introducing a subversive question. Role-playing, asks Graham, is usually a cooperative pastime, but in some genres, such as spy dramas or more political games, players may have hidden agendas or divergent goals. Given that I'm running campaigns using Gumshoe and F20 Rules Not Hill Folk, what suggestions do you have to ensure a campaign doesn't break down due to player paranoia and lack of trust? Robin, how do you prevent player paranoia and lack of trust from breaking down your non-Hill Folk games? Well, I would step back a bit and suggest that these are incompatible goals. <gasps> that if you have a group of players and you want them to trust each other, they need to have the same agenda. Uh, and if you uh, look back at, uh, you know, what type of spy or conspiracy story are you trying to emulate? Are you trying to emulate one in which there are a group of people working together toward an end and they might possibly diverge here and there on uh, points of uh, tactics or maybe one of them in a twist at the uh, second act turns out to betray them? Or are you looking at something that is more of a 
would translate into kind of a PVP thing where there are a whole bunch of people working at cross purposes or are working temporarily toward one goal, at which point they then split off and then, you know, each try to win at the end. Um, Skullduggery is exactly that. It is a game that uh, assumes that you're going to kind of work together for a while while setting yourselves all up to uh, betray each other at the end. Uh, Fiasco, uh, often as it spirals into disaster, does that exact same thing. But that's not the same as like a spy thriller where everybody's kind of mostly working together like the Mission Impossibles after that weird first one. So I see why there's the desire to do that because you're taking different elements from one sort of spy story and trying to graft them onto another sort of spy story, but I'm not sure they uh, actually graft. I'm going to say that assuming you have a meta level of trust around the table and that all players agree you're there to play X kind of game, whatever it is, you can get player buy-in for pretty much anything. And my... A great arrow in my quiver here is the Amber Diceless role-playing game, which is designed to do nothing but uh, create PvP, even where none might not, might exist ordinarily. It, it uh, creates to drive these separate agendas and put characters butting heads and conspiring against each other and messing with each other uh, solo or offline or however you do it. And if players have all come to the table and said, yep, we're going to play Amber Diceless and we're going to spend you know the next few months or years uh, stabbing each other in the eye and enjoying it, then that's what you're going to do. So if you get the buy-in ahead of time and you say, hey, players, we are playing one of those spy thrillers in which everyone's got a divergent agenda, or we're playing a uh, game of modern geopolitics in which we're all uh, delegates uh, from the UN to an alien race, but we're all secretly trying to get our own country to have the leg up in the great alien wars or whatever the the setup is. And there's plenty of setups in which the group of characters either learn to trust each other despite divergent agendas or don't. And the fun comes in seeing these strong protagonists smack up against each other, all of whom have individual motives as opposed to the larger stop or don't stop the antagonist type motive. So I think if you get player buy-in ahead of time, you can build out whatever kind of genre of play you want. Right. But but that's, there's either one thing or the other, right? You can't have both cohesion and PvP in the same setup, right? You can, obviously, I think you can do that because that's yeah. skullduggery. Right. Uh, but the, uh, unless I'm misunderstanding the question. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure he's asking about cohesion, right? I mean, he's okay. saying players may have hidden agendas or divergent goals. Uh, that doesn't mean you're cohesive or not cohesive. That just means that the the starting assumptions are players are going to have hidden agendas and divergent goals, and they may cohere locally or at the beginning of the game, as in Skullduggery or Dying Earth, and then splinter up. So is the question then how to get players not to feel that they're that the it's character versus character not player versus player. And that is my that goes to my larger my larger point of get the players to buy in and agree that they're going to play a game in which this is accepted behavior. And if you have a player who says I don't like that, I like teaming up to stab kobolds, then that player uh, as with always you get a player who doesn't like uh, Lovecraft they don't get to come to Delta Green Day you get a player who's squicked out by vampires they don't get to play Knights Black Agents you get a player who only wants to play D&D they don't get to play anything else that's just the way the world is right right but if if you achieve buy-in mm-hmm. i guess the question is how do you mechanically in F20 or Gumshoe have uh, lots of betrayal that the players don't take personally is this is this our real question maybe that's it's i think it's part of the question i think the real question is the one that we answer by saying get by in ahead of time right which is the answer to everything right yeah but you know just 
just because it's the answer to everything doesn't mean doesn't mean people don't keep asking it. That's kind of how you tell it's the answer to everything. Right. But in terms of mechanical tools to allow that kind of thing, I would say, uh, well, to start with the trust and betrayal mechanics and Knights Black Agents do kind of a good job, he said, modestly, because he didn't actually invent them. They came out of uh, the Mountain Witch by Timothy Kleinert. So describe them in a bit more detail. They do a bang-up job. And also, I think, uh, Cold City. I think uh, 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 Malcolm Craig's Cold City had a great deal to do with that as well. Um, that is in which, by acting to cooperate with a player character and help them out, uh, they give you trust. Uh, if they give you trust, you can spend it to help them. And if you spend it to betray them, then it becomes vastly more effective because they trusted you and weren't expecting it. And so there's a mechanical incentive there to create a possibility of backstabbing while also providing a mechanical incentive to trust. So uh, the trust and betrayal rules in Knights Black Agents, because this is so often the case in the, in the genre kind of privilege the, we're working for you with you for a while, and then we're going to stab you in the back. And then it's really going to be PVP until one of you is out of the game. But there's no reason you couldn't set it up where, nope, I betrayed you that one time, but now I'm back. Haha. And that happens a lot in serial media, uh, Supernatural, for example, when the demon Crowley keeps showing up. And sure enough, there's just this time they have to trust him for reasons that beggar the imagination probably go to the, uh, everyone enjoying that actor. Um, and so you can create that kind of a, of a setup in game, assuming again, you have a meta agreement that, uh, War to the Knife is going to, uh, derail the game, or you as the GM always have a more tempting target than your fellow player character. Right. So the, the way to do that on an adventure creation level is to always have a threat that is so bad that you need to team up with the other player characters who you don't trust because that threat, whatever it is, is of such a magnitude that the beefs that you have uh, against one another are, you know, pale in comparison. And so it's like, well, we'll all go and, you know, tackle this ghoul outbreak that's going to, you know, swarm over Paris and kill everybody. And then we'll go back to our little agendas afterwards. Right. Or, you know, there's a, you know, ISIS has got a shell full of red mercury. And so uh, the Americans and the Russians and the French all have to team up to get it out of Syria and out of their hands. But then what's going to happen when they get it onto the boat? That's when the real fun begins. So, you know, whoever steals the shell, ISIS is still coming after everybody because they wanted their shell back. And so you've still got a bad guy out there who's more important than uh, paying back your uh, your quantum partner for having um, uh, lifted the shell at the last minute or uh, substituted it for a different shell that's full of boring old TNT. Another way to achieve that is to have basically the equivalent of drives in Gumshoe, but these are the your weak points. The things that the other characters know about and can leverage in order to uh, get you to agree to things that otherwise you wouldn't. And so that everybody has a, a soft spot. So, for example, uh, you know, if you have a particular uh, hate on for a particular operative who you want to bring down because they killed your family or whatever, that's a bargaining chip that the other players can use to create a path for you to agree to cooperate with them briefly, even though it would otherwise now be out of character for them to do that. Another thing that people really hate and you have to get additional buy-in for is uh, to have the player characters agree, or rather have the players agree that their characters can be deceived on a, a die roll or a point expenditure. So that in Gumshoe, if someone 
you know, spends a point of reassurance, they can do that on another character and reassure them uh, for, you know, within the limits of believability, but enough to get them to go along and, and uh, cooperate. Or, you know, in an F20 game, you use your... Uh, your bluff skill or whatever. Yeah, whatever it is in, in whatever version of F20 you're using. And again, the uh, character is uh, goes along with it because the player has agreed that that's part of the ground rules for... Uh, what's going on here. Now. I mean, with, with uh, F20, you have the mechanic of just saying, make a wisdom save. You know, did you buy that or did you not buy that? And if you didn't, it's just like, yeah, you don't know it's an illusion. So assuming you've got players who are, you know, above the mental age of 10 and can handle, nope, I didn't see that that was an illusion. I walked right into those spikes. Yeah. There shouldn't uh, be any real Christmas problem. Is no saying, longer a dump stat if <laughs> yeah, you do that. Right. You know, you, um, uh, you say, well, I, I fell for the plausible thief yet again. Look at me. Ha ha. Good thing I have a plus five sword or else I'd just be meat in any dungeon. Another, uh, important tool, I think, to combat player paranoia as opposed to character paranoia is to have a no secrets in the room rule that, uh, when you are playing a scene where you go off and conspire with another of the player characters, that happens in full view of the other players. The characters don't know the content of that conversation, but the players do. And that allows them to sort of savor the dramatic irony of playing their characters not knowing what that is. And often if you do that, people will dig in with relish to something that would otherwise, if they didn't, if they were just totally in the dark, first of all, there's the fact that they're just, you know, bored and left out when you go off and do a, a secret scene with somebody. But also they, on one level, know what's going on and they can play into that and have fun playing into that. And so because the players know, they feel less like a rube uh, than uh, they would if you're, um, you know, doing uh, corner scenes or whatever. Now, I know a lot of GMs really love the secrets and the corner scenes and stuff, but I think if you are having issues with player trust in a conspiratorial game, that will go a long way toward fixing them. Now, of course, everybody has to be honor-bound to play their characters in such a way that everything they do makes sense without the knowledge that their players have. But again, uh, I don't think you want to play this sort of game with... Uh, players that you as a GM don't trust to follow the uh, explicit ground rules either. Right. Yeah. Because there's, I mean, the only thing that makes this kind of game less fun than a player who's out to ruin it for everyone is other players who won't allow the natural denouement to happen. And so you wind up with this constant frustration on all sides, as opposed to the momentary, oh, look like you got me again, clever French rogue, as opposed to the, um, uh, just the, no, you didn't, last tags, I would have done this, and ever, I mean, with uh, Gumshoe, in, in theory, you can say, well, I have preparedness, so of course I had my, you know, anti-poison amulet on, or whatever, but that's not always going to make the fiction flow, and it's always going to mess with the emotion, so it's better, I think, just to roll with it and promise to get them the next time around. Uh, which is, again, totally in genre. Right, and what is acceptable in that model is to very cleverly leverage the plot so that you get to discover the secrets that you already know, provided that at every step in the way, everything you do makes sense without the knowledge you have, which is playing with dramatic irony. Right. And that uh, can add an extra level of, of fun meta play because the players can all be experiencing what you're doing as an anticipation beat because they know that you are moving toward uh, discovering... Uh, this or that, but as long as you, as a player, make that credible 
at every step of the way, it uh, becomes a, a fun extra level of uh, spider webbing on top of everything else. And I think the I think the interesting thing there, uh, or maybe an exercise you can do, is think about the the two types of play that we're talking about: the surprise in the room and the no surprises in the room. As the difference between watching the usual suspects the first time and watching it again. Uh, you watch it the first time, and you're like, "Oh my god." That was Kaiser Soze all along. Shocker. And then you watch it again, and it's still a fun movie because you're now picking up all the little clues that uh, Macquarie left in the film. And you're and at the end, you have enjoyed that on precisely that dramatically ironic level. And if you can inculcate that kind of joy in the players, then that will go a long way to preventing paranoia because their first interest is to enjoy their, their or their 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 great interest is to enjoy the cleverness and ironic manipulation that the other players are engaging in and they their priority is not necessarily going to be i have to keep my little sack of hit points intact right because not having information you want creates anxiety uh and that's why it's a downbeat narratively when you're analyzing a story and anything you do that increases the player's anxiety will increase their distrust and the likelihood that they will be at loggerheads in an outside-the-game, non-fun way, as opposed to channeling that through their characters and having fun with the conflicts that they're having with each other. And that's essentially the secret of anything PvP, is that the players all have to be enjoying that level of competition and, and jockeying. And I think that the... Uh, so you want to look at... Uh, and also you may want to avoid uh, other external... Uh, pressure on them as well, or just see how much pressure and anxiety are are vicing on on the group at any moment. So if the interplayer conflicts are getting really tense, you want to take your foot off the accelerator on the external GMC uh, antagonist reactions that are going on. And uh, conversely, when they all start getting along and resolving their differences and uh, deciding that you know, oh hey, you're you're okay after all. That's when you put your foot back on the accelerator and introduce a new plot element that will then give them something else that puts them at odds, some other reason to uh, betray each other when they get to the dockyards. Or conversely, um, you can take that moment of great interplayer tension, and that's when a bunch of ISIS guys on Zodiacs uh, show up on the horizon pointing right at your boat. And now it's like, do you shoot your buddy in the head now, or do we have to go and fight off these uh, these swarming pirates and deal with our next problem right that's not so much reducing the tension as, as shifting its locality. yeah and i think that's that's almost more fun because then that old tension may still be there but you know again the players i think in most games are going to be unlikely to shoot an ally in the back if they are providing targeted rifle fire against your enemies um so you will wind up with a, a sort of delicious irony of its own level uh by changing the ground on which the combat happens before the combat can get to a point where someone has to take, you know, has to make an irrevocable act. And I think that is how you keep something like that on the boil. And then the question of who was watching that um, uh, shell full of red mercury during all the combat? I don't know, but you know, there's a shell sitting there. Is it the same one? Who can say? And that's the, and that can be sort of, you know, add more uh, layers of, of fun and interest into it. Well, on that note, before our gaming hut betrays us, I think we'd better exit this hut and move along to an upcoming hut and or segment.
The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the director's handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. It's time once again for Among My Many Hats. This is a segment where the covert self-promotion of the rest of the podcast turns into the overt self-promotion of one of us talking about one of his new projects. And uh, Ken, you uh, often supply new topics for this segment by dint of your monthly Ken Writes About Stuff. And in this case, uh, you're kind of exiting the the writing about stuff, I believe. Yes, it is going on uh, at least hiatus while Fall of Delta Green gets hammered into shape by me. Uh, And then depending on whether or not there is a huge hue and cry uh, unto Pelgrim. Not just a hue, not just a cry. There have to be both a hue and a cry. Both a hue and a cry. It's a binary uh, toxin. Um, You have to have hue and cry uh, outside Pelgrim Global World Headquarters. Uh, then perhaps it will come back, but, uh, it, it's, uh, its followers were doughty and brave and bold, but they were not as numerous as perhaps, uh, Simon would have liked. And so the hiatus. Or at least not uh, as numerous compared to the people who will want Fall of Delta Green. Yeah, no, I think that, yes, the, that, that is the, that is the, uh, sort of balancing act is yes. to what Given extent. that the number of cans available is one. Yes. We must, uh, hoard <laughs> our resources. But as you're departing, uh, the rights about stuff, uh, area, You've plopped a bit of a uh, a rubber dinghy, a lifeboat, as it uh, were, in the waters with the uh, Starry Wisdom uh, installment, and that's the also sort of a pilot for Unspeakable Cults, which I understand might be a a book of its own later on. And this is basically uh, you're presenting the Starry Wisdom Cult for Trail of Cthulhu, and because this is the first edition of Unspeakable Cults, you're also presenting a format in which you'll present not only this one, but uh, future Lovecraftian uh, groups as well. So I thought uh, before we talk about story wisdom itself, we can talk about the design process 
of how you go about deciding uh, what is going to go into a format like this. What are the things that you want to make sure that you talk about each time and that you can fruitfully talk about a whole bunch of times uh, when addressing a bunch of different entries. So how did you go about coming up with the format uh, for an unspeakable cult in general? It's based very closely on the Hideous Creatures format because that one worked pretty well. And Hideous Creatures is your is the survey of Lovecraftian, survey of monsters. Lovecraftian monsters. Yes, from all manner of different angles, historically, mythically, uh, etc., uh, with different understandings and whatnot. A cult is different from a monster because... Uh, a cult is, uh, usually just a bunch of guys. It's not got, you know, it, it may have superpowers. And in fact, uh, the Starry Wisdom might have superpowers that are granted to it by it, their communion with the Haunter of the Dark. But by and large, it's going to be a bunch of people. And so the, their anchors into the, into the gameplay are going to be social and cultural. And so I provide stats for cultists and stats for their, their, uh, sort of higher ups, in this case, the clergy of the Starry Wisdom cult. And then the cult structure, so you can build out your own version of a Starry Wisdom cult, uh, the symbology, so that if you see a, a, a certain symbol or you want to work symbols into your game as, uh, as, a, as an iconographic note of horror, these are the options available to a Starry Wisdom cultist. And then a bunch of past versions of the Starry Wisdom cult that you can say, no, I like those better, I'm going to run those forward, and current or or immediate spin-offs of the of the cult because the cult canonically of course was shut down in um uh Providence in 1877 and then uh, uh continued to be an empty church until Robert Blake uh, awakens the haunter but of course it being a Lovecraft thing it has not been left alone so there are uh, things within the Cthulhu mythos fiction as well as other games that can be expanded on and then I also uh use that as an opportunity to come up with a proper uh, variation on other uh, weirdo cults in Los Angeles so that I could have one that was a Star Wisdom cult. So the Astral Wisdom Brotherhood, for those of you who recognize um, uh, its uh, antecedent names, will uh, know exactly how to play them. But they are very powerful in Hollywood because there are Hollywood people who are desperate for both access and imaginary Egyptian wisdom. So these guys are out there in your Trail of Cthulhu Hollywood. I think that they... I don't think we brought we brought them into the final reel, but I've I've mentioned them a couple of other places. So then from that you get uh investigative hooks. How do you find the cult? And rather than the list of clues for each ability, I have avenues of investigation, ways to find out about the cult, sort of the uh to present pieces of that uh scenario's spine as ways that you might um uh, be able to move in on an investigation of the cult. Again, because an investigation of a cult is going to be a longer process, uh, possibly than simply, oh my God, it's a monster. What do we know about it? Uh, type. Right. And involves uh, a lot more interpersonal abilities because you're right. talking to people and discovering who is in the cult, who's in the cult, but pretending not to be, who saw the cult, um, over up on the hill doing something weird. Mm -hmm. And so that gives you a lot, uh, more of something that you're doing in the day and something that relates more to the social fabric of the place that you're in. And then what does the cult do to you once you start pestering it? It might be possible going forward. I didn't do it in this one, but it might be possible to do a, a version of the Vampyramid from Knights Black Agents as a response pyramid for them. I think that might have been a good idea to have put in here. And maybe if it becomes a book, that is what I'll do. And then a couple of scenario seeds uh, that try and break the standard version of the Starry Wisdom Cult so that you have... Uh, because the standard one, again, is the abandoned church, weirdos in the church, they kidnap kids, uh, haunt of the dark, blah, blah, blah. Everyone can do that in their sleep. So 
what's new and fun about the Star Wisdom cult specifically that you can uh, tie in. And that's that would be true of, of all the cults, because once you have sort of the standard picture, anyone can do that. That's the whole point of having a cult is that you sort of have a, a mimeograph machine that you can run off and present, you know, the Star Wisdom cult in Providence is going to be basically the same as the Star Wisdom cult in Moscow or, or Manchester or Cape Town or wherever, because that's what a cult is, right? It's a bunch of guys who operate on a ritual level and engage in ritual behavior. And so the the uh, macro lesson here is if you want to create a format in which to present information, look at another format that you previously used to present information with something slightly different, and then take inspiration from that and adapt it as necessary to the new thing you're going to be describing a bunch of times. And so this takes us to uh, the Starry Wisdom Cult in particular. Um, as you've already said, that comes from Lovecraft's story, The Haunter in the Dark. Uh, that's the one where he uh, kills off a fictional Robert Block. Mm -hmm. Can you remind people who haven't read uh, Haunter in the Dark for a while uh, basically what the storyline of that is and how the cult is presented in that? It's presented as a sequel to a, a Robert Block story called The Shambler from the Stars in which Block kills off Lovecraft. And his narrator flees into the darkness away from the burning building that he's left Lovecraft in. Uh, Lovecraft then repays the favor by having the narrator from that story, Robert Blake, move elsewhere in Providence, besides that, you know, burned out house, and uh, move into Lovecraft's actual apartment. And from that apartment, look down at an actual church, the Federal Hill. Uh, it was St. John's Catholic Church in uh, on Federal Hill, but Lovecraft recast it as an old free will Baptist church for uh, and for as part of his, I think, standard pattern of making it be the whitest of people that become the most uh, debased in his uh, certainly in, in his latter fictions. That's what happens. So Blake goes down into this uh, compelling church, messes around exposes the haunter of the dark uh, to the light and that uh, gives it the, the, the magical juice to awaken, begin haunting his dreams, pulling him back and forth there. Uh, he uncovers uh, the history of the starry wisdom cult that had lived there in the starry wisdom church. And then uh, during a cataclysmic lightning storm, when the power is being knocked out all over the city, the haunter of the dark escapes and comes after Blake and sure enough, they, they meld into sort of an Ur-Nirlathotep entity, and uh, a great lightning strike fills the whole room with light, dispels the Haunter, but not before Blake is dead. And that is the uh, terrific end to Lovecraft's last story, sadly, The Haunter of the Dark. And so the starry wisdom cult in that is basically present in the backstory. Right. So uh, the protagonist does an investigation of the cult, but what he finds when he... Uh, checks out their church is just the the creature the remnant the, the the creature the 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 shining trapezohedron and their old cult library that he uh deciphers uh their sort of um their 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 ritual diary uh which is written in the aclo and uh deciphers it and figures out sort of the uh the 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 backstory of the haunter uh it's revealed from this deciphered diary and from the dreams that he has and visions that the haunter reveals to him and uh from the investigations of a Providence reporter named Edwin Lillibridge, whose skeleton he finds inside the Starry Wisdom Church and then reads the skeleton's notebook in a particularly gruesome example of the Lovecraftian research as horror motif. And so this gives you a lot of freedom then to uh, spin out other scenarios in which you actually do meet uh, members of the Starry Wisdom uh, cult. And so how did you go about uh, making them active in a way that makes them, you know, not just generic mythos cultists, but specific to the details that you find in that story. 
Well, for, for me, I mean, like you, like you suggest, going back to the details of the story is the first key. So Lovecraft mentions, uh, vestrymen as members of the cult. And so that tells you that this is looking more like a Methodist church or a, uh, even an, uh, an Episcopalian church than it is a crazy, you know, orgiastic, everyone knife each other type cult. And so that's going to give you a little sense of the structure. Um, Lovecraft describes some of the symbols. So you use those symbols and not other symbols. There's a connection to Egypt. So you pull in. Egyptomania and uh, and the Egyptian symbology and uh, Lillibridge's investigation indicates the church uh, was abducting kids and that the uh, locals uh, preying on immigrant neighborhoods and the local immigrants were up in arms about it and uh, so that is their uh, uh, their metier is is child abduction for no doubt fell and horrible purposes so that gives you your sort of your basic uh, groundwork of the cult that it's drawn directly from Lovecraft. Everything is totally defensible within Lovecraft. And then to play onto it, you say, all right, what else might they have gotten up to? And so I've, I've two sort of uh, successor versions, the celestial Providence church in Chicago, which uh, their starry wisdom version was destroyed in the fire, but the survivors didn't leave town. They just became um uh, they 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 uh, elevated themselves they they took their their cult books and they put them into uh in influential libraries and then got positions of um uh sort of pedagogical power so they have free thinker salons that meet at the University of Chicago so that's my uh, attempt to sort of tie something like uh the Leopold and Loeb murders uh into the starry wisdom right it's these weirdos that go around thinking that they're um, above uh, human morality and teach people about the mythos uh, using their old uh, starry wisdom lore. And again, the child endangerment, a lot of the other same tropes are there, but it's been, you know, taken out of the cult and into a different space. And then meanwhile, the astral wisdom brotherhood, as I uh, intimated is a version of uh, the good old church of Scientology only with uh, mythos fun, as opposed to boring science fiction um, uh, alien fun. Right. And as, as you also point out, the uh, bad guys in the first season of True Detective, or as I like to call it, the season of, the True, season Detective, of True Detective, basically map pretty well onto the story of wisdom. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so that suggests what they could be doing in the, in the modern environment and that the, uh, you know, if anything, our fears of child abduction are even more acute uh, in 2016 than they would have been when that story was written. And so there's a lot of uh, and, you know, you have to keep in mind the creepiness threshold that your players will be willing to tolerate as mm -hmm. to see how far you uh, push that. But if you have a group of players who are uh, willing to go somewhere extreme, you could uh, go somewhere quite extreme and have them be very, very bad, bad guys indeed. So what is their uh, agenda of your basic we look like Methodists uh, starry wisdom cult? Because this is also fun. It gives you the uh, possibility of doing the uh, seemingly placid small town that turns out to be rife with cultist thing. And so if you can envision a town where, you know, it was founded by starry wisdom people and they're all the town fathers and uh, they are projecting this outward blandness, but, you know, people who come to town, especially if they come to town with kids in tow, something bad is possibly going to happen to them. How did, how do how do you go about setting that sort of classic trope into a, a starry wisdom scenario? Well, you have to sort of uh, slow their roll a little bit because the starry wisdom, as designed by Lovecraft, are designed to have been exposed and driven out of town, and that of course can be because they have constant exposure to the haunter of the dark through the shining trepozohedron. Whereas if your if your local cult uh, out somewhere 
um, uh, in Wisdomville, um, has only occasional communion with the, with the Haunter of the Dark, they're, they're going to degenerate more slowly and perhaps more thoroughly because they can corrupt the entire town, as, as you hint. But the goal of the cult is to commune with the Haunter of the Dark, to commune with Nirlathotep through the trapezohedron. That's their ritual object. It's what the whole experience of being in the cult is centered around, is to be able to enter into communion with Nirlathotep. Now, again, at one remove, if you're only entering into communion with Nirlathotep on Nirlathotep Easter and Nirlathotep Christmas, that's going to be different than if you can do it literally any time you go into the attic. Uh, and so you can have their goal is maybe to find the, the, the shining trapezohedron because of course at the end of Blake's, uh, adventure, it gets dropped into Narragansett Bay and in theory is gone forever. But of course, as we all know, nothing has ever gone forever. Right. They may, they may need to reconstitute it. They may need to build a new one or they may be uh, or trying sponsor to- another dig in Egypt where they can go out and, um, uh, and, uh, and, and find, you know, another relic of the reign of Nefren Ka that they can use. And again, uh, one of the big sponsors of archaeology in, uh, Palestine, in Israel, in Egypt, in Jordan, in the whole, uh, Levant has been American religious organizations because they want to go and dig up and find out where Joseph reigned in Egypt and they want to find out, uh, where David and Solomon's palaces were and, and the drive of, uh, what's called biblical archaeology has been so often sponsored by American Protestant groups that having another American Protestant church sponsoring their own little dig at Hadoth by the Nile or uh, somewhere is not going to look weird to the outside world, but will be a great uh, s- a signal and trigger to a bunch of players that, oh, my God, these guys are up to something because why would the little church of Wisdomville need to be sponsoring an archaeological dig in Egypt? That seems odd. And then already you've got something that if you go to anyone else and you say, they're sponsoring a dig in Egypt, the authorities say, yeah, so is everybody. What's your problem? And uh, But you can have that Lovecraftian moment of, of paranoia. Right. Or they could be trying to summon a trapehedron, which means, uh, you know, gathering a bunch of uh, victims that you, mm-hmm. they have to keep in the basement until the time they have enough of them to do the ritual. Or they could already have the object and now they're uh, trying to lure the haunter in the dark from the old church to their new location. And I think there's other fun that you could have in a more satirical vein with the idea that they are uh, outwardly placid Methodists. You could do an interfaith conference uh, where they are showing up and they're looking for potential uh, new recruits and hoping to uh, spread starry wisdom uh, through uh, the different Protestant denominations. And you could be the investigators who uh, you know, someone is found uh, horribly and supernaturally killed at the interfaith conference, and now you're uh, the, the ones who have to then uh, find out what happened, with, of course, without tipping your hand to the existence of the mythos, because that would cause a, a big trouble if uh, all of the faith communities in uh, America knew about the mythos. There's some reason why you have to make sure that you're on the, uh, on the QT as you try to figure out which of these many wonderful, sincere, sweet people uh, is are actually the cultists, and uh, which ones are just wonderful, sweet believers. And and depending on your own personal faith background, um, you can have fun with you know the church basement hot dish uh, potluck or any of the other tropes that you uh, may have experienced uh, uh, growing up. And you can say, all right, what if that was the Haunter of the Dark guys doing it? What if that was the Starry Wisdom potluck hot dish dinner? What does that look like? Or maybe it just looks like everything else, but you know, 
Um, uh, the minister's wife brings those great pork buns that, you know, not everyone can have some, just the, just the vestryman gets some yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or whatever it is. And, and so you can, you can add that moment and your interfaith conference is fun because your player characters can all show up as, um, uh, as skeptical, uh, uh, a mainline Christian academics. who's like, well, God and Jesus are just nice words. We like to say about behaving well and, and fighting global warming. And then, nope, it's the crazy Baptists who have the right idea that, you know, sure enough, there's unconscionable extraterrestrial evil afoot. And it's only after a couple of those, um, uh, 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 faith leaders get horribly murdered that you say, well, maybe there is something to what Jedediah Langford uh, said before his horrible and mysterious death. Right. You could, uh, occultify, you could mythosize the, uh, new movie, The Green Room, which we both like quite a bit. Yeah. And rather than have people uh, show up at a uh, white supremacist uh, club in the middle of nowhere and find a uh, recently murdered person in the green room, you could uh, show up out of town, a group of you uh, visiting your uh, what you think is just another Methodist denomination, and one of you goes in to get their casserole with the masking tape with your name written on mm-hmm. it because you forgot the casserole, and then... You see the horrible thing. And then fun fun follows when. Yes, and then you have your uh, Starry Wisdom uh, survival horror. Uh, well, I think we've uh, well-limbed both the format and the cult that goes in the format and can adjourn to our next hut and or segment. when demons lodge in your memories. Well, there are seven different sorts of demons, each of which has a different mnemonic effect. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This show also made possible by generous patrons precisely like... Chris McNeil. Joshua Brumley. Morgan Ellis. Neil Dalton. And Oren Geshuri. Join these stalwarts as they grab Pitchfork and Torch to pay a call on the Church of Starry Wisdom. Rendezvous point? Our Patreon at patreon.com slash Ken and Robin. The Lengthening Shadows the looming statuary and the cobwebs slowly waving in an unfelt wind tell us we have entered the creepy confines of the horror hut. And in the horror hut, uh, although there is so much that could go into it, 
Today, we are being asked to look at one of the most refined and numinous possible ingredients in the Horror Hut, because Patreon backer Cardboard Sandwich of the uh, New England Sandwiches, I believe, <laughs> yes. um, has asked us... I, I remember Corrugated Paper Sandwich as well. He's, he's Corey, he was guy. a good guy. He was a good guy. It's a shame. Shame what happened to him. Um, uh, he has asked us, uh, Cardboard, as I like to call him, has asked us about incorporating M.R. James, the greatest ghost story author in the English language, into RPGs. Robin, do you have immediate M.R. James uh, ideas, or do we want to talk a little bit about how great is M.R. James and uh, why everyone should be reading M.R. James instead of wasting a bunch of valuable time uh, doing anything else. Well, why don't you start with that, and then I, I will make a, a terrible confession that I have confessed to you previously. Yes, well, um, uh, goodness, Robin. You, you clen- cleanse your soul, then. M.R. Um, James was a... He, he was an antiquarian and, and a medievalist, and he was the uh, provost of uh, King's College and later of Eton, and in this sort of genteel english of English backgrounds, he wrote the most gruesome, shuddersome horror stories that have ever been written uh, in the ghost story uh, vein. And a lot of his ghost stories are less ghost stories and just horrible spectral happening or even horrible corporeal happening that you still cannot adduce a cause for. They are beautifully limbed examples. Yeah, they're beautifully limbed examples of a manifestation, a literal monster, an appearance of something horrible from outside. And uh, the Ghost Stories of an Antiquary, which is his first collection in 1904, is perhaps uh, the greatest single ghost story collection ever by a single author. Although uh, all of his other uh, stories are, are quite good, but Ghost Stories of an Antiquary is is um uh, is perhaps the finest and you can go to ash tree press and online they will sell you a pdf uh, or an epub or, or a kindle of all of mr james's fantastic fiction his ghost stories his fantasy novel tons of tons of stuff for just a a, a ridiculously i think it's like 10 bucks or 11 bucks i i got the thing as a gift sheila got this for me as a gift uh when it was in a limited edition hardback for like 80 bucks and it's uh it is. Tre- I treasure it, but uh, knowing that you can have it in Kindle for ten is uh, possibly the best news ever. So I urge people who have not read M.R. James to rush over to Ash Tree Books or Ash Tree Press and um, uh, and download it uh, right now. So my terrible confession. Terrible is confession. That I know I'm supposed to like M.R. James. Yes, you are. And I don't dislike M.R. James, but I don't really like M.R. James, or at least it just all sort of washes over me. That I, you know, after reading it, I could see, oh, I see why this is brilliant. I see why people love it. But a week later, could I tell you what happened in any of the stories? No, I couldn't. Uh, There's something about M.R. James that I bounce off of. And I think that something is, is that the the characters are, you know, are just vehicles to deliver that manifestation. And the manifestations, they're, they're cool enough, but they don't linger with me the way they do with with so many other people. And I think that that, uh, whether you agree with my uh, subjective reaction to them or not, is also the challenge of rendering them in a role-playing game form, because compared to the things that we traditionally associate with a horror role-playing session, they're kind of low stakes. And it's basically the plot is boy meets manifestation. Mm -hmm. End of story. Horror ensues. Yeah. they're, They're basically kind of vignettes. Yeah. And so how do we, turn encounters with things that uh, in real life would uh, creep us the heck out, but don't have that sort of 
escalating threat and development of a horror story by Stephen King or H.P. Lovecraft or somebody who's doing a more elaborate narrative based on those images. Um, I think there's a couple of things that we can do. There's a couple of things in James, like the titular Count Magnus, that could be, uh, I don't want to say inflated, but could be expanded into um, ongoing threats in the same way that although the Mego only show up in one story in Lovecraft, they are presented as a cosmic threat, and so you can understand that they might show up anywhere. Count Magnus is just in one box somewhere in Sweden, but he's got a cult. He had a cult town named Chorazin that he went to, and if you... And explain to, to people who or what Count Magnus is. Uh, Count Magnus is a sort of mysterious black magician uh, in, in Sweden who is, uh, uh, I think he's caught by uh no you know you know what i think he just vanishes and then the traveler is sort of looking for evidence of him and he finds this coffin and uh the the locks on the coffin start falling off and a tentacle comes out and well that's that's all she wrote right there that'll mess you up so the the implication is that count magnus has somehow transitioned himself into uh has translated himself i should say transitioned good word uh translated himself into some sort of horrific demonic form and it's also interesting because it's the only pre-Lovecraftian use of the tentacle uh, to convey explicit otherworldly horror that I think you you ever see. So, Count right. Magnus... And, and more more solid up. and threatening to have an yeah. evil sorcerer than than the ghost. Uh, then, or then a strange thing that you saw when you made a rubbing in a um, uh, in, in a in a in a cathedral close, or um, ran across a weird picture in a book, as in the mezzotint. Um, and, you know, the weird picture in the book is super weird and it does mess him up and there is a level to which it comes out of the picture and into his life, but it's not like deep ones that are, you know, lurking under every ocean plotting to drown uh, the world. It's just a creepy picture in a book. Now, the argument being that there's an awful lot of these um, uh, ghosts and monsters just in this one little stretch of Eastern England uh, implies that everywhere is messed up. And that is everywhere damp, which yeah, is everywhere damp is messed up, which is, which is the sort of thing that Stephen King does with, with Maine, right? If, is, if, you know, Derry, Maine is as, uh, as horribly, uh, monstrously oversupplied with, with terror, uh, as, as it is, uh, what must New York City be like? What must Chicago be like if this one tiny idyllic Maine community is full of all this nonsense? Everywhere you live is unsafe. And I think that's somewhat what James gets at when he has these very, grounded in the English landscape type stories that happen um, uh, to uh, his uh, pretty forgettable protagonists. I don't think you're wrong about that. And one thing about uh, James also is that the sole protagonist is even more hardwired into them than uh, other, uh, you know, Lovecraft, you can sort of, there are ones where there's uh, an adventuring party uh, of sorts in them, uh, but these are very much one person sees something, has an experience is frightened by it. Mm. And so I think that uh, when at Pelgrin we do want to tackle M.R. James, and I'm perhaps not the one to do it, the gumshoe one-to-one format I think will work much better for that because you are one player playing alone. It's easier to create uh, more of a sense of uh, threat when you're alone. And also the uh, way that uh, game works is that rather than, for example, having... Uh, stability or sanity points that drain away from you, you will just get a, a card that tells you if you don't straighten out this uh, problem by the end of the narrative, uh, this is the horrible thing that will happen. Mm-hmm. And that horrible thing can, that can happen is just you will never want to be inside a building at night again or you know something that's along the stakes of James. And so I think you still would have to elaborate into more of a plot, 
and something you can actually discover in some way, right? The, the question of James is you don't really ever fully investigate things. You just sort of see the edges of something uh, squicky and that's enough. Yeah. Um, and so you'd still need some to add bolt on some uh, development or possible resolution from that. But I think the idea of having with that system, you can then scale any sort of horror. So just, you know, you saw the wall ripple can be like a terror card that you, uh, that's terror, not tarot, uh, <laughs> that, that you have to somehow deal with in the course of the narrative in order to rationalize away or find the reason behind it. Or, you know, wall will just frighten you for the rest of your life. And I, so, uh, I think that that, uh, if we ever do want to try and adapt James, that the, the one-to-one format is the way to, to go with that. I think a, a possibility for a for a Jamesian game has to admit that the characters are going to be even more fragile than a standard Call of Cthulhu character. I mean, you're going to be going into something like Cthulhu Dark, where uh, if you ever encounter the outside, it's going to ruin you or you're going to die of a heart attack. Those are the two possibilities. There's no third. Well, I guess the wall rippled, you know, not going back to that wall. That's not even an option for you. And presenting the the proper Jamesian apocalypse of the revelation of this, of this existence of horror has to de- de- depend on a, uh, on, on the, on the fate of the character being terrible. And so you begin by saying your character is weak. Maybe it's a bunch of characters. You could probably have a group of um, uh, like a, like a country house party or a, or a couple of uh, curates who are going around uh, looking at uh, gravestone rubbings, uh, that that happens a great deal in in the Edwardian literature that you've got two old friends who are on a walk. That I think that's in um, uh, uh, Whistler. I come to you, my lad. The um, the the main character who is terrified by folded clothes. Um, yes. <laughs> folded <laughs> I, sheets. I made a rubbing sanity check. <laughs> yeah, get him. Um, uh, is on a golfing outing uh, with a friend, and so you can have multiple uh, player characters. But the GM first of all has to have read and loved all of M.R. James. This is not the kind of thing that you can just convey, even to the degree that Lovecraft can be conveyed by a list of monsters and their, you know, attack powers. This has got to be like a a variant of the murder of crows card game, really, where you're all trying to assemble the most terrifying possible uh, narrative, you know, where the elements are, you know, a golf sock and uh, (laughs) a glimmer in the distance. The the, the trouble is that that almost begins to move into camp, right? Uh, It becomes like like more than almost (laughs) more than almost perhaps just completely into camp. Um, And, and one of the great things about James is that it isn't camp in the moment of, of reading it, you know, although the surroundings are by now total camp and no one, I think reads, uh, novels of Edwardian or stories even of Edwardian curates without some degree of ironic distance from them. Even, uh, even curates, I think, are now reading them ironically. But in the moment as you're reading James, that all falls away and you're just beside yourself with, uh, anticipation. Right. And I, I think another way to go, you might want to update, uh, James, because of course the antiquarian curates were part of his world, not a, a quaint old fashioned thing mm-hmm. he was writing so that uh, you might want to set it in the contemporary world and so that, you know, you see the wall ripple after you've been, you know, posting pictures to Facebook and you go back and as you're scrolling through your Facebook feed, there's one 
weird image that really terrifies you, and then you can't find it again, and then the wall ripples. Right? Or you so might you, be um, uh, like the, the, the urban explorers, the people who go into the abandoned buildings and, and look around. Um, that's the sort of that's the same sort of touching the edge of death type thing that doing graveyard rubbings is, I think. And so if you're in looking around at an abandoned building, that's a good place to find a, a haunt or a spook or a, or, a, or a manifestation of some kind. And that can be a contemporary thing. If you, yeah, you, you can certainly present it in a contemporary idiom if you are comfortable enough with contemporary idiom and with James that you don't wind up doing, you know, two like, no, this is both. A terrible, uh, uh, hip hop, uh, song and it's terrible MR James. Now you've just ruined everything. But for, uh, as a contemporary example, right, the first act of all of those paranormal activity movies mm-hmm. is Jamesian, really, right? Yeah. Because you are just seeing little things happening that are it become increasingly, you know, a, a, an object moves on a table or, you know, you hear a creaking noise. And it's the, the downfall of those films is that the slow burn is always scarier than the actual revelation of the the demons in the third act, right? They have no third act. They barely have a second act. Mm-hmm. But the first act is often, you know, quite really great. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that you can you you can look at uh, things like that. Um, James is less. Of, I guess the ash tree is about a haunted house, but less of them are haunted houses. They're more about people who go somewhere to invite this uh, this contact with with uh, with with the with the evil. Um, but you can, you can certainly present it as, you know, people who are, who are, um, uh, you know, going to college for the first time and they hear the urban legend about, you know, what happens if you go to the cemetery and blah, blah, blah. And then you wind up as opposed to it being a, uh, uh, the, the rest of the horror movie, it's just the part where they go to the cemetery and there's weird shadows in there and their flashlight keeps showing them something that they can't see with anything else or whatever. Um, so are there any other uh, notes on James that you want to make before we uh, head off to our final hut? I mean, the, the note on James is just read more James. And uh, I you know hope that you do not have the uh, James recessive gene that poor Robin is, is suffering from. Um, I have the same gene about uh, Charles Dickens. So I'm not, um, I'm not immune to this, uh, to this dread curse, but I would say, uh, read more, James. There's uh, Ramsey Campbell did an anthology uh, called Meddling with Ghosts, Stories in the Tradition of M.R. James. That's a bunch of different uh, modern writers doing um, uh, Jamesian stories. Uh, it's not cheap, but it's uh, but they're all good and they're and they're easily uh, worth uh, hunting out. So I would say, you know, and, and read modern ghost stories. A couple of them are still good. Um, obviously, Peter Straub's ghost story. But look at James. Avail yourself of those lovely uh, cheap James, uh, uh, EPUB and Kindles from, uh, Ashtree Press. And if you are inspired, you will, uh, learn a great deal about how to present something that doesn't seem very scary in the most terrifying tenor imaginable. And that can only help all of your horror games, whether they're ostensibly Jamesian or not. Uh, well, I sense the wall rippling, so, uh, let's go to a hut where the wall maybe isn't. When you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order, 
you didn't know you'd be going up against the cultists, conspirators, creatures, and inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This player's only rulebook for Delta Green the role-playing game tells you everything you need to know about character creation, investigation, combat, sanity, gear, agents that will help and hinder your progress. And scenes of the home front that show you what you're fighting for. And dying for. And maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for. Grab the Delta Green Agent's Handbook from Arc Dream Publishing in oh-so-secure PDF format at RPG Now. The cry of the alien big cat rambling the moors outside, the presence of uh, on the mantle of a chunk of precambrian rock with a AAA battery uh, embedded in it and of course the overhead whir of UFOs tell us that we've once more entered that most mysterious that most ill-defined dare I say 14 of huts the elliptony hut and this time around patreon backer Ross Ireland would like us to riff on some alien conspiracies that are not the default X-Files style alien conspiracy. So I guess the first step there is to uh, determine what the default is in order to not do not do it. (laughs) And uh, the actual conspiracy on the X-Files, as it was uh, further developed or perhaps muddied in uh, the most recent uh, return of the X-Files in the little miniseries they had uh, this winter. Uh, You mean the packing peanuts for a new Darren uh, Morgan episode? Yes, exactly. But basically the idea is, is that you have your classic gray aliens. They crash-landed on Earth, or they came uh, willingly to Earth and landed safely, and they've made a deal with the uh, military-industrial complex of some kind that is sinister, That they uh, and so the military is complicit in keeping the activities of the uh, greys uh, secret from humanity, and depending on the conspiracy theory you want to go, they're either uh, doing something sinister uh, that might uh, have something to do with their uh, weird medical experiments that they seem to always want to perform on you when they take you onto their craft, or that they have a big uh, harmonic convergence-style uh, reordering of the world, and they're coming as our uh, weird sort of reptilian space sa- saviors, and uh, they're going to fix everything. And that's sort of a throwback to the earlier kind of space brother Aquarian aliens who were coming to tell us to pick up our litter and uh, get rid of nuclear weapons. And they would uh, uh, be all sort of uh, Jesus-y for us if we, if we did that. So I guess the first step in having a different alien conspiracy, Ken, uh, is to have a different alien. Would you agree? Um, I think you probably want to at least start with a different alien, just so that you're not um, immediately thrown into the gray template. And again, uh, using the graves without their mythology is like using centaurs without their mythology. Uh, you can do it, but you've kind of lost the whole fun of using them in the first place. So why would you? You, you would you would want to start with um, uh, a different aliens, um, of which there are many. Uh, in addition to your greys and your reptoids, there are, as you allude, the space brothers, the the Nordic aliens, as they are as they are called, the sort of tall. Uh, good-looking blonde aliens that show up and, uh, as you suggest, tell us to pick up our litter um, in varying tones and varying definitions of litter. There are uh, the Nomo, who are one of my favorite uh, aliens that are posited by uh, Robert Temple as the aliens that uplifted uh, Sumer and 
such places, and they're sort of dolphin-y or mermaid-y type aliens. They're aquatic, uh, swimming around aliens. I think that they're, they're a great deal of fun. And, uh, other sorts of, um, ancient astronaut aliens are, are plausible, although they usually turn out to look like, um, Aryan supermen, because guess what? Von Donneken is a horrible racist. Um, they also have, um, uh, the, what are, what are called the oranges, who are, uh, orange aliens and sort of, I think just sort of wander around, uh, being there in case you need another alien. They're sort of like the, um, uh, the potsy of aliens, <laughs> um, uh, or the Ralph Malf of aliens. Um, there's, uh, mantids who are insectile aliens and they're bad news. They're like the grays, but without that sort of naive, uh, loose charm. Um, I'm, I think the mantids make a good threatening bad alien race if you're, if you're looking for them. And of course, there are, uh, the black dwarves, uh, the, the tiny little aliens with, with great big black beards. Uh, those are, um, uh, hard, I think, to make properly alien, but can certainly seem Fortean in a game, right. uh, that is heavily towards we that. You can sort of deturn them more into like the, uh, kind of Mole Man style aliens. Right. In that, uh, one episode of Superman that had something other than Superman that was super in it. That, uh, do you remember that one from being a kid with the George Reeves Superman and the Mole Man? Aliens, I find that terrifying as a child. Yeah, I, remember, I, I mean, I certainly saw it. I don't think I, f- I found it terrifying, but uh, I don't think I found anything particularly terrifying on the George Reeves Superman one way or the well, other. Well, Superman never fought rats. Yeah, that's true. He didn't. And you know why? Because he was smart. <laughs> Burned them to death with his x-ray vision before they ever got close to him. That's how Superman throws but, down. But we, we have digressed. We have digressed. I'm just saying, Superman is not going to mess with this crap. Batman has to dress up like one. That's what Batman's problem is. Yes. Anyway, where were we? Aliens. Aliens. So we have all these different <laughs> sorts of aliens. Yes. Uh, and we also have the, we can throw in the John Keel aliens who are just basically uh, the fairies from another dimension in uh, a new wrapper. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, and that can be one where you start off your alien conspiracy looking like it's going to be the typical gray conspiracy. And then you find that it's weirder still, that the, all of those manifestations are just uh, sort of uh, psychic efflorescences of the uh, uh, whatever the uh, fairy creatures from the other dimension are doing that messes with our mind and, and perceptions and that what they're, uh, you know, they may be trying to convince the military that they're giving them technology, but really there's some other, you know, the transformation that they're trying to occur is not a technological one or a, a, a social political one, but uh, one of the very doors of our perception that they're going to uh, basically uh, send us all on a, a bad leery acid trip. So uh, what would we get out of the Nomo? You like the Nomo? What do we do with them? How do they become a conspiracy? Because that's basically the, the two ingredients to create an alien conspiracy. You have your alien and then you have your humans on earth uh, who are uh, colluding somehow either as uh, dupes or minions or in some versions that they have, captured the aliens and they're in control, but you need the, uh, the human agency, the uh, folks walking around the streets who can come after you, uh, even when there aren't aliens around and hassle you into uh, recanting your uh, UFO sighting or what have you. So what, uh, what would humans be doing if they were uh, in bed with the Nomos? Well, I begin with the Nomo. I mean, I sort of did a riff on the Nomos with uh, Madness Dossier, which we've talked about previously in which, uh, the ancient Sumerian, uh, uh, monsters of various kinds, uh, dominated the world through mimetic programming. And I think if you have your Nomo, who are supposedly the, the beings that brought human culture to humans and uplifted us in ancient China and ancient Greece and ancient Sumer and other places, the Nomo conspiracy is to have planted these sort of control codes 
or uh, pheromonal triggers or however you want to put it into people that are like, oh, good, the Nomo are our friends. The Nomo will help. We'll give the Nomo access to whatever they want. And so the conspiracy may not even be a formal conspiracy. Like there's a secret branch of the, um, of the, of the U.S. Navy that's in league with the uh, subterranean dolphin uh, people. But it's just that whenever the Nomos show up, people will help them because that's how they designed us. And they made sure to not have these dangerous monkey people um, uh, ever be a threat to them because the Nomo are not stupid after all. And so when they come back from Sirius to do whatever their errand is, it's that the conspiracy is a, um, is a spontaneous one. And for whatever reason, our, our heroes are immune because they have a, a, a specific kind of brain defect or they've been eating a lot of this one kind of cereal that contains a deadly additive that kills all, off uh, your substance addicts. Right. Yeah. The, the, yeah. They're all, they're all heroin addicts or something. And so they fried out their, their dopamine receptors so they can't, uh, they can't get pleasure from helping Nomo yes. anymore. And so you, you can have any number of reasons that these sort of fringy outside people have been pulled together and, then they are immune to the Nomo and the Nomo don't really have a conspiracy, but they have a, uh, a self-organizing bunch of people who want to help the Nomo with whatever it is the Nomo want. Another thing that this ties into is uh, the Stargate conspiracy, which was one of my favorite uh, conspiracies, which is that the you know military and the government and the European Union and whoever else are faking all this evidence of aliens in order to create a, uh, a pagan church that will worship the aliens as gods and whether or not the aliens are real, uh, the authors of the Stargate conspiracy beautifully argue doesn't matter <laughs> because either there are real aliens that we are being sold out to. And that's a little more X filesy, or there are pretend aliens that they are going to manufacture and make us worship. And the notion of sort of, Palming that card, that's one of the great things about the Stargate conspiracy, but it, but it creates this sort of weird religious quality to it. And it's why a lot of your ancient astronaut dialogue and a lot of even your modern day alien dialogue winds up so creepily religious is because that's the direction that the movers and shakers of, of global opinion are forcing it into. And that's why there's all that Christ imagery in ET is because Steven Spielberg is on the take. Uh, from the, from, from the one world, uh, Illuminati Priory of Zion European Union guys. And he's making us worship aliens and think that they're Jesus. Your, uh, sort of mermaid style aquatic aliens can be, uh, angry about ocean acidification. Absolutely. Uh, yes. It may well be the case that they, you know, have to keep going from habitable planet to habitable planet in search of an environment that they need. But the problem is if it's habitable, eventually there's going to be a civilization and civilization wrecks the ocean. So they, are uh, conspiring with, uh, let's say, the world's technology leaders to take the uh, military end of the military-industrial complex out of it for a sec. And they are promising all of this uh, uh, green, renewable energy. But really what that's going to be is once it's in place, it's going to wipe out the uh, annoying surface creatures who are destroying the oceans. And so you have to be the one who discovers that uh, all of the electric cars and the wind turbines are really just uh, uh, there to... Uh, cleanse the world on a deeper level wind and, uh, turbines have a good tripod aspect to them anyway yes i think if you look at wind turbines um you can creep yourself up out about wind turbines with no problem and I, I think that's that's a good possibility when you look at something that's already creepy if you can slot it into something another possibility is they're just trying to knock out industrial civilization they liked us just fine when we were bronze age savages so if they can just knock out that top layer of industrial capitalism then Everything will be great. We'll go back to a uh, miserable sloth, but whenever the Namo show up, we'll be happy. So good for us. <laughs> um, and I guess that's another idea is you could have 
you know, a war between different aliens. And so the purpose of the alien that's uh, arranging the conspiracy is they're just trying to train us to be uh, better cannon fodder in the coming galactic war. And so uh, all of the things that increase human aggressiveness and our arms race and uh, all of the uh, things that are pushing us toward war and aggression are subtle manipulations of our society by these uh, aliens who are looking to improve us as uh, soldiers in their uh, galactic war. Earth is like some Pacific island between the Japanese and the Americans. Yes. And so we have our cargo cults where we're like, oh, come back, aliens, bring your goodness to us. Uh, But pretty much one side or another is trying to um, uh, harness our specific uh, tribe of of warriors or cannibals and send them after the other side. Right. So that they're uh, enhancing the part of our nature that causes us to break into uh, ever smaller and smaller groups and to interpose ourselves against other groups so they're they're wired into that part of our psychology and they're tra- and whenever things happen that sort of uh move us toward a world peace or a greater identification of ourselves as being humankind rather than being a member of this nation or that nation their agents are in there to mess that up and so uh, the uh, conspiracy that you're uncovering is the one to sidetrack anything that moves us into a uh, the more Pacific side of our natures. The un-one world uh, elites. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to the one world elites that are trying to get us to worship space Jesus. Exactly. Another possibility is that, uh, sort of go back to our, our John Keel ultra-terrestrials, is that uh, the conspiracies that they construct mean no more and than anything else. And that they build these conspiracies as a jape or a prank or an experiment or our, our minds and societies are like Legos or Tinker Toys to them. And so they show up and they say, ah, let's see if we can get them all to build cathedrals for 200 years. Ah, I did it. Ha ha. I win. Or let's see if we can get them to, um, uh, you know, uh, tell everyone what restaurant they're at all the time. Ah, I did it. And so all of the culture jamming, that is going on as uh, things speed up here at the end is that more and more ultra terrestrials have sort it's we're sort of the center of an ultra terrestrial flash mob that they're showing up and messing with us. And again, the conspiracies are accidental or uh, literal jokes. The, the notion of the, um, uh, the invisible fishmonger, uh, the, that, that's what explains the fall of fish is not that fish fall out of the sky, but that there's a fishmonger who can run around the country invisibly. And that's a more logical explanation, uh, than, than the Fortean falls of fish. So the, the, the aliens are, are there to, uh, to create these sort of structures that then fall into each other, uh, in an amusing way. We're like the uh, robot wars of the demolition derby of aliens. And it could be that the, the greys whose main, uh, jam is to experiment on us are basically just a distraction from the real aliens who are really experimenting on us. Because, you know, really, how many uh, eggs can you possibly harvest? So we are a big sociology experiment uh, that is being run on a a cosmic timescale. And the uh, aliens have cloned uh, what we call humans on many, many different habitable planets. And for each of them, they set you know, a different set of sociological parameters into play and then just see what happens. And, you know, maybe we're the control group. We're the one that was not interfered with and we're just going off being our, our weird human selves. And the, there are, uh, you know, we're basically like their uh, distant, distant ancestors. And on another planet, they decided to change our DNA just slightly in another way and see how that society would develop and see how that society would develop. And we're, you know, just a research project. And, uh, uh, we mean really, uh, you know, nothing to them except uh, uh, data, but they have to make sure that we don't mess up the experiment by becoming aware of it. 
And so that's all, that's all the conspiracy is, is just a continual distraction as we move further and further along the technological scale and become much more likely to detect their presence. They have to start to do more in order to prevent that, but they can't do so much that it ruins us as the control group. Another possibility uh, riffing off the cargo cult uh, that I mentioned earlier is the old Charles Fort line, I think we're property or I think we're fished for, that the aliens are operate on such an enormous scope that they literally don't care. We're not even a Pacific Island to them. We're like one tiny village of a Pacific Island to them. And we are our conspiracies that the entire U.S. Air Force and all of those guys have been building UFOs and, and digging tunnels and everything else in a ritual act to attempt to draw the attention of one of these cosmic fishermen. Because if we ever do, if we ever do draw back the enormous miles long spindle that crossed, uh, the, 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 the plane of Saturn, uh, in 1878 or whenever, or we ever do draw back the force that, uh, wiped out Tunguska by accident, or we ever do draw back any of those things, then, uh, in the cargo cult belief, uh, we can make all the bad guys go away and give us nothing but uh, spam and, uh, and 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 cigarette lighters for all time. The real secret of the conspiracy could be that our the ancient astronauts are dead. They were going to come back and do stuff with us and uh, realize us, uh, bring us our true individuation. But uh, they got wiped out. It happens in the galaxy, and so the conspiracy. Gamma ray bursters, man, can't be too yeah. careful. And so the conspiracy is basically just an attempt by those who were programmed to receive them right their programming is is kicking in and they're starting to do all the things necessary in order to uh, prepare for the great unveiling but nobody's coming those those uh you know the the automated uh ships may be arriving but when they open up they're full of skeletons and maybe some of those skeletons have already arrived and so some people in the conspiracy uh who've been activated know the the really horrible truth that they have to continue like robots, continue to act to lay out the welcome mat for a savior that's never going to come. And so there's a, a conspiracy within the conspiracy of the uh, the people who think that they're welcoming the Space Brothers and then the other people who are trying to break out of the programming and prepare for you know what happens when the giant mothership appears over the uh, White House and just a bunch of powdered corpses tumble out. <laughs> well, it'll just be another day in the Trump administration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to have a huge uh, crumbled aliens. We're so sick of dead aliens. Oh my God! Uh, another possibility is that uh, the um, now you've distracted me with your with your talk. Um, <laughs> you horrible menace. I wasn't the mention. I wasn't the one who said the words Trump and administration. Next yeah, to you each said other. horrible alien powdered corpses. So you you say you didn't say that. <laughs> I know it sounds like you were saying Hillary, but I know you were saying Trump. Um, <laughs> the uh, uh, the alien space brothers. Let's let's go at it the other way. Let's take it. Uh, man who fell to Earth. Uh, um, uh, stranger in a strange land. Way the alien space brothers do exist. They are genuinely. Uh, to their mind benevolent, they're going to insert themselves into our society and reprogram us to all love one another and, and share water and blah, blah, blah. The trouble is that if people are altered on that fundamental level, it basically spells doom to organized government, you know, communism, capitalism, dictatorship, free will, free will, uh, Islamic fundamentalism, all of the ways that we direct ourselves. So the conspiracy is... The, the Air Force is, yeah, they're, they're hunting down aliens because they know that if the aliens ever get a foothold 
it's the end of America, right? And they whether just want to turn us into mushrooms, communing with each other. Yeah, which they, they think just want to make us but... make us happy. And maybe you, the player characters, like, no, I kind of like the aliens. I think that this peace and love and harmony and and uh, and shrooms is is a good thing for humanity. And maybe a player characters might say, no, it's actually a terrible thing for humanity. It it leads to um uh, to simple placid sheeple planet, and we don't want that. We want to be uh, John W. Campbell badass. Uh, space striding humanity that raises the possibility of instead of a stability or a sanity stat you have a uh, inner harmony stat a, a chill stat <laughs> yeah and if your harmony gets too large you uh, become one of the communing mushroom people right and uh, you're out of the game and and what i and what i like about this structure is there, there's a plausible argument either way right that you're like no i think that we should all be hippie communal people or it's like no i don't think we should all be you know, hippie communal people, we have to have structure and organization. I want to we'll know just... how Better Call Saul ends. I don't exactly. want this all to turn into mushrooms. Yes. I, I want, I want so many other things than to turn into a mushroom people. And it's the, uh, the old, uh, uh body snatchers, uh, conspiracy where the pods replace us. And when they replace us, Santa Mira, you know, in the novel, it sort of goes to hell, but in the movie, it's just sort of Santa Mira hang along and there's no more crime and everyone's happy with each other. And isn't that good? Isn't that what we've always wanted as a, as a society? So you can present your alien space brothers, uh, not as a scam or as, um, uh, imperious, uh, fascist conquerors, but as an infection. And is it an infection that makes us better or an infection that makes us worse? But either way, it makes us different. And that's a challenge to existing society. And that's why the Air Force has got top secret alien hunting, uh, special ops guys. Matango, mushroom of harmony. Uh, well, on that note, I think we've uh, spun out uh, uh, approximately a dozen possible non-standard alien conspiracies, so we can pronounce ourselves uh, victorious and exit this podcast in our own spinning silver craft. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors! Atlas Games! Pelgrane Press! Phoenix! Arc Dream! Dork Tower! And Pro Fantasy Software! Music, as always, is by James Semple! Audio editing by Rob Borges! Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Canon Robin. Rank yourself among such distinguished supporters as Patrick Dawson, Paul Richmond, Rafe Ball, Richard August, and Richard Ruain. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>